Okay, um, let's let's start with prayer. We've got a little extra time today. Father, I'm grateful that you brought us together again on this uh, fourth Sunday of Advent, and as we wrap this small little series up today, I pray that you will um, you'll do so with opening our hearts and our minds to perceive the wonders and the joys of your of your instruction of your law. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I didn't. I don't think I finished Zechariah eight last week. I wanted to get do eight and nine. I'll just, kind of just give you an overview of what where the book goes. After chapter nine, you have um, some more sort of prophetic announcements about um, Judah and the reordering of Judah according to God's law, God's instruction. Chapter eleven gets a little bit weird with these two shepherds that show up that need to be shepherding a flock that's going to be slaughtered. That makes for a good Christmas Eve reading if you're looking for some. <laughs> Um, then you have more sort of cleansing. And then the, the last chapter, um, uh, chapter 14, is an announcement of the coming day of the Lord, which uses all of these images and illustrations from um, Exodus, from uh, the, the, the plagues, and all of it attesting to the fact that a day is coming when the Lord will separate those who will be his survivors, his remnant, from those who have set themselves up over against God and his kingdom. And it's all really rather... Um, intense move that, that Zechariah ends out. Um, in fact, I think large por- portions of Zechariah 14 are alluded to throughout the book of Revelation as well. So um, Zechariah has, a, has had a long... I mean, if you, if you um, remember, we mentioned this, uh, I think, probably at the beginning. At some point I've talked about it. But these latter prophets, when you get um, after the 8th century into the 7th and then 6th century, and this is probably 6th as it bleeds into the 5th century B.C., these latter prophets are marked primarily by their, um, what the Germans called their, um, well, it's a, a writing prophecies. I mean, they're not, they're not primarily oral addresses. I mean, some of them have come from oral addresses, but they're primarily prophecies that from the get-go are prophecies that have been written down. So they have, they're, they're inscribed. And in their inscription, what you tend to see is that these prophetic books build their arguments on the basis of previous prophetic voices. Um, so you'll find embedded within uh, these latter prophets, and the technical term for that is intertextuality, um, where older texts are embedded into newer texts, and it gives them sort of new life and a new context for meaning. And it shows that these words are alive and they continue to resonate um, within the prophetic witness. And that, that's something that I think Zechariah is very much known for. Um, the book of Joel is another book that's quite known for its reading of former prophets as it continues to make its own uh, prophetic voice known. It's why most scholars locate Joel as a later book, because it's marked by the character traits that we've come to associate with these later books, namely the continual reference to prophecies that have come before. I should say something about this, because if you read anything in the literature on the nature of biblical prophecy... Um, or if you watch, I don't know, CNN or the History Channel the week before this week, in, you know, Christmas or in Advent, I mean, in Lent, um, you'll you'll hear talk about Old Testament prophecies, and and there can be a very critical understanding of the life of Old Testament prophecies going through the mill of a continual correction. Um, in in other words, uh, there's there's a history in these prophetic books that um, things didn't quite work out like Isaiah planned, right? Uh, so you have a later author who comes along and corrects some things, amends some things, so that they can cover their, the tracks of their mistakes. 
I call that redaction or editorial activity by constant correction. Um, Micah said this, oops, that didn't quite work out, so we'll come in and we'll clean Micah up a little bit. Um, that, that's not my understanding of what's going on in, in the compositional history of biblical books. I do think that the prophetic books have a life, by the way, beyond the historical prophet himself, um, and that's because the word of the Lord continues to exert its force into future generations, and I think you'll find later prophetic figures or later, later scribal voices that are applying these original prophetic words into new moments. And that, to my mind, is a more of a top-down understanding of the scribal activity and shaping and ordering the prophetic books rather than a bottom-up understanding that sees, oops, Micah got that one wrong, uh, Daniel punted there, uh, Zechariah, he must have gone to sleep at that point, and there's this constant fixing and correcting that's going on. I, I, I don't conceive of it that way. I conceive of it much more within the theology of God's prophetic word. Um, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You know, the prophetic word of the Lord has the ability to continue to do its work beyond human persona. And that has to do with all the biblical books, frankly. And that's, that's their canonical intentionality. So we're back to Zechariah 8. And I do want to leave time for questions because I haven't done that. I've been taking most of the time so we can bat some things around. We can talk about whatever you want to talk about this morning. Um, I shouldn't probably do that. It's going to get dangerous, but... Um, all right, so we're back in Zechariah chapter 8. This is the promise that happens, uh, that's given to from God Almighty back to Zion. Do you remember this from last week? And what's the scene that you have once God's word to Zion makes its way into the people of God and then reorients God's people according to God's own order? Well, it's a beautiful scene, right? Chapter 8, verse 4 this is what the Lord says. Once again, uh, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with a cane in hand because of their age. And the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. It's a, it's a pretty wonderful scene. And we talked about this last week and reflected on it, so I won't press into it too much today. But it is interesting to my mind that when the prophets give a portrayal of the future, they often do so um, by using images from ordinary life at its best. Uh, it's ordinary life. It's old men on park benches. It's children in the street playing. It's Micah chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 2. It's uh, men and women sitting in their houses or in their tents drinking the wine from their vineyard and the figs off their tree. Um, and that, that's, I think, something, frankly, worth reflecting on as we conceive ourselves about what the future life will be like, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and I don't know what your conception of the new heavens and the new earth is, but I do think that we need to have a much more physically robust conception of what the future will be like. I mean, you've seen enough Far Side cartoons or New Yorker cartoons where you see, you know, two angels sitting on a cloud. And I remember one Far Side cartoon where the caption was, "If I'd have known it was going to be so boring up here, I'd have brought a magazine." Right? I mean, there, there's this conception about being disembodied. There's this conception about um, being separated from your body and your soul goes away and your body is here and your soul escaping your body is actually the release um, into your true existence. That's not true, right? That's what we call good old-fashioned heresy. Um, You know, the Gnostic... Uh, the Gnostic heresy of the early church that you find the greatest theological voices combating, like Irenaeus and Tertullian 
in the second century, Athanasius and Hilary of Poitiers in the fourth century. I mean, these who were combating this philosophical view that had really taken hold of many Christians, namely that the body is bad, the material order is inherently evil, but the spirit, the pneuma, that's where... That's where true beauty is. That's where true ideas are. And what's the goal of existence? Well, the goal of, of existence is to escape that which holds us down because of our bodies. That, by the way, is behind the philosophies of Stoicism and Epicureanism in the, in the, in, in the Greco-Roman world. What are we, what are we doing? Well, we're trying, whether Epicurean or Stoic, and the flip side's really the same coin, um, what are we trying to do? We're trying to avoid the pain of this world. I mean, we often treat Epicureanism as if it were um, a hedonism, right? You're just seeking headlong for pleasure. So an Epicurean was just, you know, a, a, has a wanderlust for as much pleasure as we can amass in this world because tomorrow we die. That's not really Epicureanism. The Epicurean idea is not so much that we're just going to go to Vegas and spend the rest of our lives there. The idea is how can we order our lives in such a way as to avoid pain? And where does pain come from? Well, pain comes from the fact that we're embodied. So how do you do that, if you ask an Epicurean? Read the works even of the Stoic kind of instincts of Cicero. What's Cicero saying? Well, we don't attach ourselves too much to any of our relations. Right? Why? Well, because that's the whole Stoic idea. You detach yourself from your relations too much you keep your views and your affections on any material reality in this world, whether it's your wife or whether it's your vineyard or whether it's your children, because we know that the world is pain, life is suffering. And when those through the natural course of events go away, if you protect yourself enough, then you won't be beholden to the pain of this world. You're making yourself somewhat neutral to that. And that was really Cicero's idea until here's a kind of fun historical fact until his daughter died. And it's an amazing thing, actually, to read some of the some of the letters that Cicero wrote during that time. Why? All bets off. All bets off. I loved her, and now she's gone. Uh, you know, so that, this uh, this whole notion about being detached from the physical world was was very much in the philosophical air um, of of the early Christian period. Interestingly enough, that's not the air we breathe now. I don't think. I think we live very much in the residue of the post 19th century, especially in Germany and the residue of, of, of a materialist worldview, that the material world is all that there is, right? And because it's all that there is, there's nothing after it, and, can, and it can be explained scientifically. You have matter, we're here, we breathe, we live, and then we're gone. Um, so this is the kind of materialistic view that I think has led in, into a certain kind of hedonism, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow it's, it's all over kind of thing. So we, we have, I think, different philosophical issues that we need to address. But with all of that said, the whole escape from the body to go into a spiritual other world, um, I think, has, is very much within um, the residual understanding of heaven and the afterlife that's, that's a part of our Christian faith. And frankly, it's a part of some of our hymnody, right? Um, somebody standing on Jordan's banks, I leave my body back. And, 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 um, and, and I think people can, in a, in a very unwise way, but I can appreciate, the, I guess, the instinct they try to encourage people when they're when they're around someone that they love who's dead. Have you have you seen this happen before? I've seen it happen, um, and I think in a moment of I guess trying to be pastorally sensitive, they say something like, "Oh, that that's just their body. That's not them. It's their body." And we say that I think to protect ourselves. And 
and understandably, I mean, going to a um, going to an open casket wake, I, I, it's not fun, especially if you know the person well, right? Um, and so people, I think, will try because of that very difficult social and familial circumstance, will try to some way attenuate the difficulty of the moment by saying. That's not really them, that's just their shell. And I think the Bible says that's not true. It's not just their shell. That's their body. And right now they exist, however that works in the mind of God and in the space of God, they exist apart from their body, but that's not the end goal. That's not where we're going in our understanding of what the future is meant to be in its perfectness. Why? Because our souls and our bodies are meant to be together. Dying and going to heaven apart from our bodies, that's an intermittent period. Whatever it looks like. It's not the final goal. What's the final goal? Well, you, we say it every Sunday together. I look forward to the res, I look to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The resurrection of our bodies. And I don't know how it works. I know it's beyond the realms of our physical um, and scientific ability to give some kind of account of it, but in some way, the cells and the matter that makes up this piece of flesh that you see right here in front of you, that is organically related to the resurrected body in some way. I don't know how, but it's organically related to the resurrected body, and somehow it's not just your that, and, and, which is bad. I wouldn't mind. I don't know. I wouldn't mind having a different one later on. To be honest with you, <laughs> well, maybe a little. That's a, you know that's a that's a great question actually, um, and these are the kinds of things that frankly this is where Calvin would say to me, uh, Genelette, there are special places in hell for people who raise questions like this. Um, but what does what 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 is the perfected state? As far I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, that will be a very interesting thing to find out because I mean think about this. Can you imagine heaven without and the new heavens and the new earth without children? Um, maybe we'll all be five. You know, I don't know. I mean, that's that kind of fun thought experiment. I don't know. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about what that would be like. I, I, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, but it will be very physical. Um, and there's going to be fly fishing. And and there's going to be uh, tractors. And you know, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's, it, it's going to be a physical world. It's a new heavens and a new earth. And fr- it's, it's old men and children playing and sitting on the sidewalk bench as they hear their kids play around them. It's, it's an incredibly... To, now, I think I would have been disappointed at that, frankly, as a 8-year-old, a 9-year-old, a teenager. It's like, man, I want, I want it a little bit better than that. But now, as a, you know, where I am now, you know, sitting on a park bench, drinking a glass of wine, watching kids play, I'll take it. Forever? That's good. That's good, right? And today we'll be, you know, we'll do it in the Smoky Mountains, and next week we'll be in the Alps. We'll see you there, right? Um, so whatever it's going to be, look like, the new heavens and the new earth, as promised here by Zechariah, is the reconstitution of creation as it was meant to be. This has been a bit of a flip for me over the past year in my thinking about the Bible. Because as you read the Bible closely enough, you begin to realize that creation and redemption are themes that feed into one another in such a way that I really can't divorce the two on a conceptual horizon. I can't divorce creation, the doctrine of creation, from the doctrine of redemption. And in fact, the prophets are all over this. Um, Isaiah talks about new creation language all the time in the context of redemption from sin. Um, Well, what does Jeremiah say? Well, your sin has come upon you, and now it's tohu wabohu again. 
Those are the words that you have in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, right? Fun Hebrew here. Tohu wabohu. Isn't that great? It sounds, there's assonance here. I don't know if you know um, Robert Alter's translation of the five books of Moses. Worth having on your shelf, frankly. Um, And he tries, and it's a very hard thing to pull off. I've seen some people try to pull this off in, in Dante work as well. It's very hard to pull off the literary plays on words that you have in an original language as you move into a target language. Um, an example of that, for example, is Jeremiah chapter 1. You know, Jeremiah, what do you see? I see an almond tree. Well, you're right to see an almond tree because I'm going to hold to my word. And you're like, what in the heck does that have to do with an almond tree? Answer, zilcho. Right? The term almond tree in Hebrew is shafar, and the verb for keeping is shafar as well. So it's a play on words. You see an almond tree, a shafar? That's right, because I'm going to shofar my word. I'm going to keep my word. So it has nothing to do with almond tree. How do you move from that play on words in Hebrew to an English translation? You don't, right? But, uh, but Robert Alters tried, I think. So his translation of Genesis 1 is, um, in the beginning is that God created the heavens and the earth, and the, it was weltering and wasting. That's not bad, actually. You get the W sound, weltering and wasting, tohu, wabohu. And Jeremiah picks up on this formlessness and void issue, this chaos, the primordial chaos. And when Israel was in the throes of her covenant and fidelity, that's the image that Jeremiah wants to use. You're back to tohu avohu. You're back to primordial chaos. It's not cosmos. It's not the ordered world of your desires properly. This is chaos. So this whole relation of creation and redemption is something that's linked tightly in the Old Testament. But the way in which the Bible shapes Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, they come at the beginning for a reason. God is the creator. And my mindset has somewhat been altered on this now to where I don't view creation primarily as serving redemption. But I see redemption, God's redemption of humanity and his ordering of the world again as a means of serving his good creation. And that seems to be what Paul's talking about in Corinthians when he says new heavens, I mean new, new creation. That seems to be what's going on in the book of Revelation when the new heavens and the new earth are presented. What's the, what's the climax of all of this? The climax is getting back to Eden. The climax is getting back to the garden as it was. The climax is the lion and the lamb playing with one another. I had the strangest dream last night. Brace yourself. Um, and I don't remember my dreams. I wish I did. I've got a wife that's sort of vivid with dreams. I, I, I just don't remember my dreams. But I had a wild dream last night. For you interpreters out there, we'll talk later. Um, but it was about a, a lion and a tiger enmeshed in combat. And I thought the tiger was dead. But the lion walked away and then the tiger sort of came back and the blood was all over the tiger and the tiger left and then... And then the lion wakes up and chases the tiger and they go at it again. And then, I, then kids were in the room or something. Uh, it's weird. I don't know what that means. But what I know what that means for the, the new heavens and the new earth, that ain't happening. Right? That's not going to be anymore. There won't be that kind of chaos that you see in creation. You may disagree with this, and I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure my instincts on it either. I'm, I probably think it's overwrought. But... Alan Jacobs, who taught English for years up at, um, at Wheaton, is now, I think, at uh, Baylor University. He's an essayist. I think that's probably his best genre. And he wrote a set of essays that 
for those of you who were on Frank Limehouse, you may know one of the, his little book called Original Sin. I think Frank Limehouse used to hand it out like a gospel tract, right? So he really liked that book. Um, another one that he wrote was called On Vanity Fair. And one of the essays in there was Alan Jacobs giving an argument for why he doesn't watch the nature channels when you see un- unmitigated violence. And I told him in person that's got to apply only, that surely cannot apply to Shark Week. That's not, it's not within the, um, within the parameters. And, and it's, I think it maybe the argument's a little bit overwrought, but, um, there is something about seeing the chaos that we see, um, in our world that witnesses to the fact that creation itself, Romans chapter 8, Colossians chapter 1, creation itself is yearning to be reordered again. Um, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible around our house to the point where, frankly, I'm, I'm really tired of it. Um, I'm, I hate to admit that, as I'm not a very good Christian, but I'm, I'm starting to abbreviate these stories. Like, and David saw Goliath, and then Goliath died. Let's pray. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but the, the, the Jesus Storybook, when it talks, if my memory serves me correctly, when it gives us the story of the garden and the fall, it creates a picture in such a way that the whole world got knocked off of its axis. <laughs> Everything's off now. This one little activity in the in the garden had a knock-on effect, not just for my personal sins, now I need a Savior. That is certainly true. But the whole universe got knocked on its heels. The whole world got knocked in a way that it's not supposed to be. And what one senses in the Bible is this deep yearning for the entirety of the created order to be back to where it was supposed to be. And that's the promise of the new heavens and, and the new earth. Well, moving on here. Um, uh, Verses 4 through 8, we have the description of his return. Verses 9 through 11, there's the encouragement to build the temple. And verses 12 through 13, we have the presentation of divine blessing. Here we go again. Listen to this. The seed will grow well. The vine will yield its fruits. The ground will produce its crops. The The heavens will drop their dew. It's as if... The prophets can't get enough of this. What does the reordering of the world look like according to God's promises? Well, your grapes come out. Your tomatoes do well. Uh, this is a bad year for me with that. You know, that's going to be great. Um, I'm going to give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of his people. Just as you, Judah, and Israel have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. And then we get into verses 14 and 16, and we see the interplay between grace and instruction. This is what the Lord Almighty says, just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and to show no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty. Now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. So here's the reversal. I had shown you my anger. My anger has gone away, and now I'm going to do good to you again. Why? Because that's the character of God. He can't do other than that. His no of judgment can, can never be his final word with his people. So these are the things that you are to do. Right? So do you get the sense here? There's a claim about divine grace, which in the Old Testament always precedes any conversation about human instruction, um, divine instruction. And you know this is a pattern of the Bible, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, when your children ask you, what do the Ten Commandments mean? Your answer to them is, well, we were slaves in Egypt and God redeemed us. I love that, that, that phrase there. Whenever there's a move toward human agency or responsibility 
or a challenge to keep the law, to attend to God's instruction. It's always preceded by an enormous call, or tends to be preceded by an enormous call and picture of God's grace to His people. Micah chapter 6 is one of those bumper sticker verses in the Bible. He has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Boy, that's a verse that a lot of people know out of the prophets. And it's got a lot of do in there. Love God, do justice, do mercy. What's it preceded by? It's preceded by in the first five verses of Micah chapter 6 with a big presentation of God's redemption of them from Egypt. God redeemed you. He brought you out of the land. He showed you His undeserving favor and kindness to you. He made His movement toward you before you ever thought about making a movement toward Him. And because that's the case, because He loves you, because He set His affection on you, this is how He wants you to mirror His activity in your life. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So here we go into the instruction. These are the things that you are to do. Well, what does it look like to live in the reality of God's grace? Speak truth to one another. Render true and sound judgments in your courts. Don't plot evil against each other. Don't love to swear falsely, declares the Lord. Because I hate all this, says the Lord. What do you see here? I think what you see is again a pattern in the Bible. Think about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments come to us in two tables. right? The first table of the law... And we say it every morning prayer Sunday, I believe. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's the first table of the law. Have no other gods before me. Keep the Sabbath. Don't take God's name lightly. Don't take it in vain. But what's the second table of the law? The second table of the law is love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Um, don't commit murder. Don't covet. Don't, we don't hear a lot of sermons on coveting. Right? Don't covet. Uh, don't take your neighbor's wife. Um, don't, uh, don't, don't lie, don't steal. So what are, you, what are those commandments about? Those commandments are the horizontal realities of living life with your neighbor, right? of living life with other people. Why? Because the vertical relationship with God is organically tied to the horizontal relationship that we have with others. And it matters in the, the social order, justice matters in the Old Testament. Don't love to swear falsely. Don't love to stretch the truth to your own advantage in a situation where that might be the case. Um, when you're in a place where you have to adjudicate something and it's complicated, do so with equity. Why? Because, Jesus says, love your neighbors as yourself. I love that scene in, in the Gospels where the Pharisees try to snag Jesus. They're doing it all the time. And the bad thing about the Pharisees is they didn't realize that he wrote the law. <laughs> That's a kind of funny point there, right? By the way, I, just want, I always wanted Jesus to say that. Hey, by the way, I wrote that thing that you're, all, you're always debating about. I, I, I'm the author. Um, and Jesus, they asked Jesus, so what's the most important commandment? And he says, well, you know, it's the Shema. A hero is there, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And what I'm fascinated about in that encounter with the Pharisees is Jesus never, I mean, the Pharisees never asked Jesus, and what's the second one? Jesus takes it on his own shoulders to show, actually, and by the way, the second is important. You didn't ask me about that, but I'm going to tell you about it. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because the first table of the law and the second table of the law, the first commandment that Jesus talks about, and then the second one, are related to to each other in such a way that you cannot have the one without the other. 
Um, it's a photo finish. It's the fact that if you see a photo finish, the first horse and the second horse are both in the frame. You can't see the one without the other. And here's that concern about the social ordering again that's going on. And then look at verse 18. This is the word of the Lord that came to me. Declares the, that came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. That's a bit obscure. Right? Um, the fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months. Most commentators say that Zechariah is tapping into something that had happened on the far side of the exile once they'd come back into the land. Things hadn't gone well. The wall hadn't been rebuilt. The temple was in ruins. And so there were ritual activities of public repentance that were going on in Judah. There was a set fast, and it was a fast of repentance that was going on in these four different months. And isn't it beautiful what the prophet says? By the way, when the promises of God come to their fruition, to their fullness, when the created order is back to where it's supposed to be, when children are playing in the streets and old people are sitting on park benches, when we're enjoying the vine and eating the figs, when all that happens, by the way, there's going to be no need for acts of ritual and communal repentance. What it's going to be are festivals of joy. Festivals of joy together. That's a beautiful image. Your season of repentance will turn into a festival of joy, and that's the promise. Now, I want to say one last thing here. Uh, in time, Hopping all the way into chapter 9. All right, it's a little bit of a disconnect, but it's connected. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Here's an Advent text. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Did the kids say this this morning? I can't remember if they did or not. Whatever they said, it was loud. I didn't know that. Um, I wish that kid's choir could be louder. So funny. I... I I've got, a, I've got a child that's in that choir. And I asked him, I said, uh, said child, do you sing when you're up there? He's like, well, I just like to mouth the words. I'm like, okay, no, <laughs> not, not a bad opportunity to sing if you get a chance. You know, just go ahead and let the sounds, let the sounds roll out. Um, so here you go, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious. Lowly and Riding on a donkey. Now, I should say something about this because this is obviously a Palm Sunday text as well, right? Riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Um, I think this is probably more a sign that the coming king is bringing peace and not war rather than just a mere presentation of humility. Why? Because there are attestations within the ancient Eastern world where in moments of peace, the royal king would come in not on a war horse, but on a peace animal, which is um, a donkey or a, a smaller animal. So he's not coming in on the big steed. It's not snorting and rearing its teeth and rearing its feet back. It's coming in on, on a donkey, on, on an instrument of, of peace. Look, he says, I'm going to take away the chariots from Ephraim. That's a little um, uh, that's a love, a, a love name for the northern kingdom. I'm going to take away the chariots from Israel. The war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will rule. His rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. 
And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Here's a beautiful verse in the Bible. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your son Zion against your son's Greece and will make you like a warrior's sword. I don't know how you feel about this, but um, there's a lot of peace songs that are sung during this time of year. And um, if you're a little cynical like I am, and I don't want to be that kind of person, but I'm afraid that I am, at least at least on Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, those songs, I think, can be a little bit irritating. I, I remember there was a Christmas special a few years back with Andre, Andrea Bocelli and um, this blonde soprano, what's her name, Jenkins, Catherine Jenkins or something like that. And they're singing, it's a beautiful song, there will be peace, and they're going back and forward and... And I, I just I just remember thinking, gosh, they sound so beautiful together, but this is absolutely absurd. Are we kidding ourselves? Right? I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's al- there's almost a, a, a comedic side to it when there's this claim about peace in the world and we want peace and I'd like to buy the world a Coke. And, um, you know, the big the big marketing campaign they have now, share a Coke with mine the other night, said it was someone who's naughty. I don't know what that meant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, ha- you have you have all these things are going on and, and you, you know, and you just know. It's, it's hard, and we know, right, that the coming one in that manger is meant to bring peace into the world, meant to bring the order back. And, uh, and that's troubling because you just turn on the news and you know, right? Syria, Sudan, I mean, just the list can go on and on. Um, the, you know, the west side of Birmingham. It's just, it's just, there's suffering everywhere, everywhere. So it's hard to kind of take some of these peace terms all that seriously um, because this doesn't seem to be the case, does it? And this is where I think a proper view of the kingdom of God is very helpful. I, I was taught this. I'll pass it on to you. It's called ICC, right? And the kingdom of God is inaugurated during this season with the coming of, our, of the Christ child into the world. God's kingdom has broken into the world. It's, it, the kingdom is inaugurated. When will the kingdom of God be? The kingdom of God is now, right? And the church in its current existence continues that kingdom work. But we await, so that's the first C, so ICC, inauguration, continuation, and then the final C is consummation. And that's where we we await for these Christmas songs to really take root and for the actualization to be true. But by the way, that doesn't exonerate us in the current C, not the final C, the continuing part, that doesn't exonerate us from seeking to be instruments and means of peace in the world. We're called to that. Um, peacemakers in our homes, peacemakers in our communities, peacemakers around the world. Um, I mean, that God calls us to that, but He calls us to that in a recognition that the ultimate and final peace, the ultimate shalom, that, reve- that, 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 that elicits from us the shouting of praise that we see here in Zechariah chapter 9, is something that we await for in His, in His second coming. And that's why I think in this season of Advent, we rightly say, Come Lord Jesus. Um, I, you know, I don't know U2's music all that well, okay? And, and I know that it's kind of a chicken cool thing to act like you do, and I, I just don't. Um, but I do remember one of my first U2 songs that I ever heard was on the radio in Tampa, Florida, um, and it was all being built up. 
first release new U2 song. No one's heard it yet. You're going to hear it. And so I was listening to the radio after, you know, three hours of commercials. You know, they do that. Um, and then the song came out and it was their, their little song, Peace on Earth, um, which is a really moving anthem, I think, to the tension that we feel. Um, heaven on earth, we need it now, right? Um, I, I don't want to hear, uh, Jesus, um, can you throw a line to a drowning man? I mean, th- that's the kind of images that you have here. Um, and we yearn for that kind of peace in the world order, but we recognize that we don't live in it now. And to pretend like we do is to be Pollyannish in a way that doesn't take into account the reality of the, of the current moment. Um, so I think we're called on to hope, called on to, to return to our fortresses, O oh, prisoners of hope. That'd be a great T-shirt for our class, right? Prisoners of hope, and that's what we are. We're prisoners of hope—a hope that looks forward to the future, in belief that the created order will be made right again, and um, and we'll sit on our park benches and we'll and we'll drink our wine. Right? Well, what do you want to bat around? Want to talk about some things? Want to want to fuss? Yeah, Matt. Thinking about your sermon this morning, God's full of surprises. Did the, did the prophets see that there would be this um, already and not yet, the difference between the inauguration and the consummation? Um, or were they all, was that a surprise to them? Um, and here, you know, here comes Jesus, but we my, still have all of our pain here. Yeah, my, I don't know the answer to that. It's a good question. Um, and I do, I do know for some teachers and you know, so scholars and interpreters of the Bible, answering that question is really important. In other words, we need to know the human consciousness of the author to be able to ascertain what the intention of the, of the work is. So if it goes beyond the horizon of what Zechariah intended or knew, then we can't let the text go beyond that. You'll hear these kinds of interpretive aphorisms around a text can never mean more than what it meant. Well, I, I, I don't buy that interpretively. Um, and I think that the Bible's Ability to refer and to witness to something that's complicated, that's textured, that has multiple layers to it, that go beyond a sort of simple reduced reading, um, may very well go beyond the horizon of any biblical author. Um, and that, to my mind, is why I prioritize the canon more so even than the human authors that wrote. It doesn't mean I'm not interested in Micah. It doesn't mean that I don't find some interesting insights to the fact that Micah comes from the Shephelah region. Micah comes from the backwaters. Micah's not from the center of, of Israel's political and religious life, but Isaiah is. And frankly, Isaiah kind of sounds like he is. Um, I mean, Isaiah writes in an uppity kind of way. Uh, Micah doesn't, right? And borrows a lot from Isaiah when he needs to pull it off. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I think those things can be very interesting. Um, but they only go so far, I think. Uh, because, again, we're dealing with the subject matter of the Bible that is eternal, and um, and that, I think, means that the Bible just has the ability, there's some elasticity with the Bible's ability to refer to things. And that's why, and if you've heard me say it in here, and it's kind of a cutesy thing, but I, you know, God gets to fulfill his prophecies in the way in which he wants to. And that's more often than not understood retrospectively than prospectively. That's what bothers me about TBN at one in the morning. Um, and why I see why it can be, is, did I say that right? Is it TBN? What's the religious channel? TV, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, you know, getting excited about red heifers that are being bred, or this and that and the other, as if as if we are able to put together, you know, in some sort of chronology, how all things are going to work out. The nature, to my mind, of biblical prophecy is that it's ambiguous, 
and that we look back and go, oh my, I cannot believe you did it like this, but I see it. That makes sense, right? But, but boy, I, w- I certainly wouldn't have drawn that, that playbook up. I wouldn't have done that. A manger, you know, I just, I wouldn't have done that. Um, so I think what you have is a kind of a pattern of language and figures in the Bible that create for us a deep sense of anticipation and God fill, that's my understanding of what it means to fulfill prophecy. It's not just uh, dropping a mortar shot, you know, mortar round into the canister, you know, and then it comes out and lands on Jesus. Now, my sense of fulfillment is that these biblical texts have been filled out to their fullest in the revelation of God and the person and work of Jesus. Um, classic example of this, you kind of tapping a raw nerve here. Classic example of this is um, the prophecy that Matthew says is fulfilled out of Hosea. When Jesus goes down to Egypt and then he comes back, out of Egypt I have called my son, and, Jesus, and, and he went down to Egypt to fulfill prophecy. And, and you go back to Hosea and you go, uh, Houston, we've got a problem. What's the problem? Hosea 11 1 is not a prophecy. Hosea 11 1 is not talking about the future. Hosea 11.1 is referring historically to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt in the past. And yet here you have Matthew saying Jesus fulfilled that. Well, what does that mean? I mean, to me, this is exhibit A. To fulfill here is not the mortar shot. It's all that pattern of existence that you saw in ancient Israel, going down to Egypt, going into the wilderness, coming out of that. All of that has been filled out to its fullest in the recapitulation of the person and work of Jesus in his life. And here's exhibit A. He's going down to Egypt. He's going to go to the wilderness and be tempted by the devil. He's going to be on top of a mountain giving the law. Boy, that sounds really familiar in the Old Testament. And then, um, and that, that's what, that's the, that's the pattern that you see. So, um, fulfillment to my mind is a much more textured, um, understanding than just a sort of simple, let's find, I call it finding Jesus under rocks and trees in the Old Testament. There's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, and we go hunting for him in those places like, you know, where, where is Waldo kind of thing, um, rather than recognizing that the whole texture of the Old Testament is witnessing to the person and work of Jesus, all of it, not just a little happy verse here or there, like Micah 5.2. It's one of the reasons why I tend to avoid texts like that, and because they seem like easy pickings, right? But it's deeper, it's more textured than, than that account. Anything else we want to bat around? Got to go get kids. Oh yeah, look at the time. I got to go preach one more time. God, I pray that you'll bless these dear friends. I pray that you'll fill them with all the hope that comes from your promises to us in your word. And Lord, when we get nervous, when we hear that you fulfill your promises in your own way, help us to throw ourselves back onto your character, that you're good and you're kind and you will do it the right way. Help us to believe that that's true. In Jesus' name, amen.